This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Last week, I clicked on a video on YouTube because of a headline that a basketball player was booed on his home court after the team had paid him, I believe, over $100 million to play for them, and he was scoreless in this particular game. And yeah, he missed a lot of shots, but I never heard any booing. So then I watched a couple more times, clearly realizing on the second go-round that A, who really cares because I had a lot of other things to do, and B kind of refer back to A, who really cares? It really didn't matter, but I was expending my increasingly limited amount of time on this very earth trying to hear a crowd of people that I didn't know boo a player that I didn't necessarily care about and then go through it a second time to try and hear the boos. And even better yet, after not hearing them through the second time of the video, I decided that I would read far too many comments to find somebody eventually say, hey, I didn't hear the booing. To which then other people said, yeah, me neither. And then finally somebody said, if you turn up the volume really loud, then this person thought that you can maybe hear kind of like a boo right before the video ends. And this, my, my fine friends, is clickbait. And welcome to The Virtual Couch. This is episode 413. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how I got clickbaited into today's topic, which is talking about therapy. And is there a time to be done with therapy? You know, when, when does one quit therapy? But before I even get to that, this is episode 413. And I had a client in earlier today who was talking a lot about the concepts of angel numbers and astrology and, and moon phases. And do I believe in them? And my job as the therapist is I want to, I want to say, well, tell me more about those and, and what do those mean for you? And what is the significance? But it did have me just for fun. I Googled the numerology meaning of the number 413. Again, this is episode 413 of The Virtual Couch. So the the number 413 is a combination of energies of the numbers 4, 1, and 3. 4 represents hard work, practicality, and dedication, while 1 signifies new beginnings in leadership, and 3 represents creativity, self-expression, and communication. So together, this number symbolizes hard work and dedication, leading to success and encouraging individuals to communicate their thoughts and desires. So Simply by listening to this episode today, 413, you are engaging in something that represents hard work and dedication and creativity and self-expression and success. Welcome aboard. And you only have one and quick, a quick item of business. You only have, I believe, one more day to get my Magnetic Marriage Four Pillars mini course. And it is perfect for the Valentine's holiday. It's $20. It will teach you about the four pillars. And you can look for the link in my show notes or on any of my social media pages. And I had a more of an ad that was written up and I just, it sounded a little bit boring. So then I put it into chat GPT and I said, can you please write me 
And I said a rhyming couplet and I thought that was just two lines together, but I really don't, I guess I don't really understand what a rhyming couplet is, but here is the ad now in rhyming couplet format. Here we go. In my practices journey, tools I've unfurled for the lovebirds I've met in this wide, wide world. The four pillars stand, though not innate, a skill to be learned, not left to fate. February's here with love in the air, a course and a game, a perfect pair. No awkward card hunts this Valentine's Day, a fun bonding path, I dare say. For connections strong or those amiss, a chance to focus on bliss, not the abyss. For 20 bucks, a venture bright, join in the fun to love's delight. So there we go. I would love for you to grab that course. So let's talk a little bit about clickbait. Clickbait is essentially when uh, a website uses super catchy or shocking headlines to make you want to click on their article, literally baiting you to click. And they do this because more clicks usually means more money for them or more people noticing their website or reading the article or notoriety or gets their name out in the public. So these headlines often promise something big, but they may not quite deliver all the details until you click and read more. So I have had a couple of people, I wanted to say in my formerly more emotionally immature slash narcissistic traits and tendencied world of math, I would have said, I've had so many people reach out to me and ask me, Tony, will you please give me your insights on this particular article? But actually, I saw it myself, and then I had uh, somebody mention it in a session, and then somebody forwarded me an email. So there's the real math. So I would say three people, including myself. And the email itself just shows a line, and it says, the case for quitting therapy. So I've had that in the back of my mind, and then when somebody had mentioned the this article to me, then I said, oh yeah, the one that's about why you need to quit therapy. So already I'm starting to create an entirely new narrative based off of this one line, the case for quitting therapy. So when I finally, well, what I decided to do is I wanted to do a little bit of a reaction to it as a therapist. And that was at the suggestion of somebody else that had forwarded the message to me, because I think that's a great idea, because I just did one recently on why people lie to their therapist. But when I actually clicked on the article itself, here's the title. Plenty of people could quit therapy right now. So let's talk about that difference. There's, there's my clickbait concept. The difference between saying the case for quitting therapy versus plenty of people could quit therapy right now. Because if you look at the case for quitting therapy, sounds like it's trying to convince everybody to stop going to therapy. Almost like saying, hey, this, this is why therapy is bad or why therapy is probably not for everybody. It's pretty direct. And it might make people feel like it's attacking the idea of therapy itself. I'm sure it sure made me feel a little bit defensive, but, and actually I haven't read the article, so I still could get defensive. But if I do, it's a me thing and we'll end up talking about differentiation at some point. But then when I looked at the article itself, it says plenty of people could quit therapy right now. So on the other hand, that feels a lot softer by using words like plenty and could seems like it's more saying hey, there are quite a few people out there who may not need therapy anymore. But it's not telling everybody to quit therapy. It's just suggesting that for some people, it might be okay to stop if they want. And and this way of putting it, it's less about making a blanket statement and more about giving just a little gentle nudge to think about these personal situations. And I just thought about, I tried to jot down a few other examples of things that, that I've heard in the recent past about similar examples where there's more of like a direct way and more of a a calm way. So uh, a direct way of saying something might be, everybody needs to stop eating sugar. 
where the more calm way is saying, you know, a lot of us could probably cut down on sugar and we may even feel better. Another thing is uh, social media is ruining society. Or it's more like, you know, a bunch of us might find that we're feeling not as down or not as depressed if we dial back on our social media just a little bit. And with that, with that framing, it's more about suggesting that some people might feel better if they use social media less rather than blaming all of society's problems on it. And I just think this just speaks to the, if something is clickbaity and it's big and dramatic, we may read it, but then we actually might not even finish the article because all of a sudden we're being blasted with this is what you need to do and then enter our good friend's psychological reactance or the instant negative reaction of being told what to do. You, you need to, whatever it is, whatever that is that I'm being told I need to do, then I'm most likely not going to do it, even if I think it's probably a good idea. If somebody says, you know, you really need to start eating better, my first thought is, where are the Girl Scout cookies? And that's immature, but it's just fascinating. But if somebody said, hey, what are your thoughts around eating better or eating right or these vegetables I hear so much about? Because then I might say, you know what, that is, uh, that's something I really wish I did a better job of putting into my diet. And then I'm going to think of that with a little bit more kindness toward myself. And I'm much more likely to then integrate those rather than somebody saying, really, you don't, you need to start eating better. If you don't, you are going to die. You need to do this. And it's just this built-in defense mechanism. So let's talk about the article today. Plenty of people could quit therapy right now. Already I'm thinking, okay, this will be a, this will be a fun journey. And the author is Richard Friedman, and he says, except in rare cases, treatment shouldn't last forever, which I think is probably a fair statement. And we'll get into that as we read through the article today together. Who is Richard Friedman? And I want to use humor and say, what does this guy know? But he's a professor of clinical psychiatry and the director of psychopharmacology at the Cornell Medical College. And he's written about mental health and neuroscience for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New England Journal of Medicine. So I think he has some pretty good credentials. So I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. But I also think that my first thought, and this is, I just want to take you on my train of thought, but as a licensed marriage and family therapist, my first thought was, oh, he's, uh, he is a professor of clinical psychiatry and he's also the director of pharma, psychopharmacology at a medical college. So my guess is that he is a medical doctor as psychiatrists are medical doctors and they can prescribe medication, which one of the first questions that I get asked uh, on interviews or when I'm doing the live question and answers with my daughter, Sydney, which if you're hearing this today on February the 13th, we're doing one tonight at 7.30 on TikTok. Just look for at virtual couch. But people will often say, what's the difference between a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist? And I just, I love bringing awareness to this because a psychiatrist is like the medic of the mental health world. And they've been through the ringer in actual medical school with a stint focusing on psychiatry, maybe during the rotations and they like it. And then they do another three or four years uh, of residency in psychiatry. So the psychiatrist is the one who can prescribe medication. And they actually used to do a fair amount of talk therapy back in the day. And I found a little bit of data that said now only about, it was 11 to 15% of their visits include a full therapy session. And psychiatrists as medical doctors get typically paid quite a bit more than uh licensed marriage and family therapist or a, a licensed professional clinical counselor or a clinical psychologist. So that's, that's pretty expensive therapy. And they typically, when they are doing therapy, again, this is according to the, the data that I found, they mainly see people with very persistent issues, typically around depression or anxiety. And then it was mentioned in this article that also personality disorders, when they do dive into therapy. So I thought that was really fascinating. 
Then psychologist, you've got a, a PsyD or you've got a PhD. And these are the deep divers of psychological theory, hands-on therapy. But after getting their doctorate, which can take anywhere four or six years plus, then they do one or two years of very closely watched work in a clinical setting. But they're your go-to for psychological assessments. And then they can do a whole range of therapies, typically work in more of a clinical setting. And, and a, a PhD in psychology might lean more into research. And then a PsyD they may be more likely to be out in the field, getting their hands dirty with clinical work, counseling, or maybe in school as, as a psychologist. And then you got your LMFT, licensed marriage and family therapists, your licensed clinical social workers, your licensed professional clinical counselors. And we all do similar things. Get, we get a two-year master's degree. And then typically we have to do something around 3,000 hours of supervised clinical experience. And, and so Richard Friedman, who wrote this article, is a psychiatrist. Let's get into the article itself. He said about four years ago, a new patient came to see him for a psychiatric consultation because he felt stuck. He'd been in therapy for 15 years, despite the fact that the depression and anxiety that first drove him to seek help had long ago faded. So instead of working on problems related to his symptoms, he and his therapist chatted about his vacations, his house renovations, and office gripes. His therapist had become, in effect, an expensive and especially supportive friend. And yet when I asked if he was considering quitting treatment, he grew hesitant and even anxious, and he said, it's just baked into my life. Again, I haven't read this article, but already I'm in because I really do feel like this is the acceptance and commitment therapy therapist in me that says, okay, who am I to tell the, the, the client who is coming in what they need to come in for? And so if they want to come in and vent, and I like to determine that, hey, what goals are we working on? Let's set up a treatment plan. But what are we working on? Because I really do believe that for some people, it just is, I was going to say therapeutic, but to feel heard and to have a safe place to communicate because so often people will feel like when they try to open up to other people that they're met with the, the, the judgment or the fix it statements. Well, why didn't you do this? Or I wouldn't have done that. Or you should do this. And so then sometimes people will stop sharing their information with others because they feel like, why? what's the point? I'm only going to be told that I'm doing it wrong or I'm going to be judged. So I will often make the joke of, okay, I can play that role of world's greatest paid friend because I love what I do and I'm going to become, I'm going to be invested in the, the, the emotional welfare and the, the lives of my clients because I care. And so I do sometimes feel like having a therapist almost on retainer would not be a bad idea because so often when people then go through something big, and now they need to go find a therapist, which can be a difficult thing. And they need to find and have a good fit with the therapist. And they are often going to need to give that therapist context of who they are and their life situation and how they process emotion. And this was the part that I was, I think, why I was probably drawn to this article in the first place. Because it absolutely can be, as Richard Freeman says, the therapist can become an expensive and especially supportive friend. But then is that necessarily a negative thing. Now, if the client starts to just rely solely on the therapist and, and the client says, well, tell me what I should do. Well, now we're probably looking at a therapist that is the one that's pretty enmeshed because I will continually say that, oh, it's not my job to tell somebody what to do because if I ever do try to play that game and I'll be very intentional about it, if the person says, I wish you could just tell me what to do. And that's typically only coming after I have built some rapport with the client then I can say, okay, we'll try this out. So check this out. I think that you should start a meditation practice. And then I want you to respond with the yeah buts. Well, yeah, but I don't even know if that works. Aha, 
there we go. See, that's what I really do feel like you should do. And now you're immediately letting me know that you're not sure if it works, but yeah, tell me something else to do. And then I will eventually find the thing that I would like to do. And then I'll do that, which then I want the person to just explore. Well, tell me what you think you should do, or give me your thoughts around something like mindfulness meditation about going out and doing, joining a club of some sort, a meetup, whatever that looks like. And then give me your yeah buts and let's talk them through. So he does, Richard Freeman goes on to say, among those who can afford it, regular psychotherapy is often viewed as a lifelong project, like working out or going to the dentist. And studies suggest, he says, that most therapy clients can measure their treatments in months instead of years, but a solid chunk of current and former patients expect therapy to last indefinitely. Therapists and clients alike, along with celebrities and media outlets, have endorsed the idea of going to therapy for extended stretches or when you're feeling fine. And he said, I've seen this myself with friends who are basically healthy and think of having a therapist as somewhat like having a physical trainer. The problem, he says, is some of the most commonly sought versions of psychotherapy are simply not designed for long-term use. Aha, okay, now we're getting somewhere again that commonly sought versions of psychotherapy are simply not designed for long-term use. So I am very open about being trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist and, and working in that environment for years where it is the thoughts lead to emotions, emotions lead to behaviors. So we need to root out and acknowledge or figure out your stinking thinking, your automatic negative thoughts, which I believe starts as if we're saying, okay, so let's figure out the things that you're, that, that have broken in you or the thoughts that are wrong. And, and I wanted to step back and again say, who am I to be the one that says, yeah, I think that those thoughts are bad and wrong and they aren't serving you well. So let me tell you what I think you should do differently and I'll help guide you on that path. A lot of me in that. In comes acceptance and commitment therapy, which is now the gold standard. It has uh, 25 years now of just continued evidence-based studies and data that says that you are the only version of you that has ever existed, that's ever walked the face of the earth with your all of your things with your nature and nurture and birth order and DNA and abandonment and rejection and hopes and fears and dreams, all of those things make you you. So what if we start this entire process and whether it's of life or of therapy, relationships, you name it, with check this out. This is what I'm thinking and this is how I'm feeling because I am the only version of me that's ever been in the situation that I'm in and this is literally the first time I'm experiencing this very moment. So here's what I'm thinking. Here's how I'm feeling. Let's take a look at that because now I want to deal with that emotion in concert with another human being. One of my favorite things as a therapist is the more that you do get to understand all of the things that make this person tick and your job is to continually be seeking data or information or treatment modalities or you name it, then when this person says, hey, here are my thoughts and feelings and here's what it feels like to be me, then oh, let's talk about that. Let's take a look at how that is working for you. And what are your goals? What are your values that are underneath how you want to live? And let's untangle those from the values that you felt that you're supposed to think or you're supposed to feel maybe from your parents, from your church community, from your job, you name it. So I am so on board with Dr. Friedman here when he says that the most common, some of the most commonly sought versions of psychotherapy are simply not designed for long-term use. I would posit that acceptance and commitment therapy is different than that that you've got somebody here that you can now start talking through and they're saying, well, here's what I'm thinking because I don't want a client to come to me and say, well, what should I think? What should I do? How should I feel? Because that is putting that power in the hands of someone that, yeah, you're starting to get to know, but you don't really know what makes this other person tick. So with ACT, I'm going to stand right here beside you and I'm going to say, where are we going? And what's important to you? And we get somewhere and all of a sudden, 
the person finds out that, oh, I never thought I would get here. I didn't, now I realize that isn't as important as I thought. I had someone recently say that if only they could put themselves in a position where they could afford a, a couple of different, these different things in their life. And they finally were in this position where they could afford it and they bought it. And then it really was. And, and even said, I know that this probably isn't going to be the, the end all be all that I thought it would be. And then once he was able to obtain this item, this, I wish I could say more, but then at that point, then he's saying, okay, yeah, that wasn't what I thought it would be. So that we're not going to find that thing. I'll be happy when we have to learn how to, to understand ourselves and, and take action and live this purpose-filled life. And those are the things that are going to bring us more joy, more satisfaction, more purpose, which is also going to come with a fair amount of happiness. So he goes on to then say that therapy comes in many varieties, but they all share a common goal to eventually end treatment because you feel and function well enough to thrive on your own. Now, I will, I will absolutely acknowledge that. Yes, as I'm saying this, it's not that I'm saying, okay, well, the, the clients better not ever leave me because it is our job to help people. I sometimes jokingly say graduate, but I like the next point. He says, stopping doesn't even need to be permanent. If you've been going to therapy for a long time and you're no longer in acute distress and you have few symptoms that bother you, he said, maybe consider taking a break. You might be pleasantly surprised by how much you learn about yourself. I love that comment because when you have the right tools, I am a big fan of uh, a lot of people that I work with are coming maybe every other week or every two or three weeks because now that they've got the right tools, they just need to go interact and be and do with the community, with the world, with others. And then that brings up feelings and emotions in them. There's that, there's my friend differentiation. So every opportunity when I interact with another human, another animal, another smell, another sound, another sight, another thing brings up emotion in me. And when you hit this place of where, and it's not the wrong emotion, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken. It's more of a check that out. Now that is, that gets exciting. Oh, why did that make me feel a certain way? And so at that moment, then maybe I can process that on my own, or maybe I do want to take that back into the therapist that now I feel uh, rapport with, that I feel like I can trust, and we can now process where that feeling or that emotion comes from. He says, therapy in both the short and long term can be life-altering. Short-term therapy tends to be focused on a particular problem, such as a depressed mood or a social anxiety. He then talks about cognitive behavioral therapy. He says, in cognitive behavioral therapy, usually used for depressive and anxiety disorders, a clinician helps the client relieve negative feelings by correcting the distorted beliefs that he has about himself. A little bit of a challenge for me on that one. I, I know, and my, my associate, Nate Christensen, who's been on the podcast many times, I really like that he has heard me just go into the, here's why ACT is so much better to, to me than traditional CBT. And he said, but man, when you come from a place of you don't have any sort of hope as a client, and then you now all of a sudden are handed cognitive behavioral therapy and you're told by somebody else that, hey, maybe there is a different way to think, then that can be a lifeline. And he's absolutely correct because I was that cognitive behavioral therapist for a number of years. So I really appreciate that, that it is a great place to start. And for some, maybe that does work really well. But the way that Dr. Friedman explains it, which I can appreciate, is where he is saying a clinician helps the client relieve negative feelings by correcting the distorted beliefs that he has about himself. I can see then how if a therapist is saying or a clinician is saying, what would happen if you looked at it this way? And that is going to bring some temporary relief to the client who's going to say, yeah, that, that, might, that makes me feel better right now. 
But then when they go back out into the wild and they're in their familiar environments, that so often they revert back to those similar thought patterns and then they can tend to feel like, wow, I can't even do therapy right. He next says, in dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, commonly used to treat borderline personality disorder, patients learn skills to manage powerful emotions, which helps improve their mood and their relationships. And he said, both treatments typically last less than a year. And if you start to get rusty or feel especially challenged by life events that come your way, you simply return for another brief stint and termination is expected and normal. I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm grateful to, to be processing this in real time because I, I feel like that comment that he makes which is true but then it is giving this temporary relief and and i just did a podcast episode on my waking up to narcissism about shelf life and i think often when something is just handed to somebody or a tool is given to somebody then they will use it until then they revert back to their old patterns or behaviors so it has a certain shelf life so when somebody's just learning to just just change your thought or just change your feelings and then do something different then that will give us sometimes just enough of the dopamine bump to say, okay, I think I can do that until I can't. And, and that's where I feel like ACT is just an amazing tool that just starts from a place of being more of an observer and having more psychological flexibility, being able to step back and check out how you're interacting with the world in a particular context, which is just, it can be so empowering to then figure yourself out and start to do do anything, take action on things that matter to you. And then what it feels like to be you over time is that when I'm noticing I'm feeling down, frustrated, sad, then those are feelings. And I sit back and I welcome those and I acknowledge them and they're there and I don't try to push them away and there's nothing wrong with me. And it's not my broken thoughts, it's my thoughts. Check those out. And now I invite those to come with me while I take action on things that matter to me. And I create a completely different interior landscape of my own mind, which is is just a phenomenal um, thing when it really starts to click and becomes more of what it feels like to be you. So then he says some types of therapy, such as psychodynamic therapy and psychoanalysis, are designed to last for several years, but not forever. The main goal of these therapies is much more ambitious than symptom relief. They aim to uncover the unconscious causes of suffering and to change a client's fundamental character. At least one well-regarded study found that long-term therapy is both highly effective and superior to briefer treatment for people diagnosed with clinically significant psychiatric illness. Other papers, he says, have shown less conclusive evidence for long-term therapy, and few studies compare short and extended treatment for clients with milder symptoms. And, and so when we're talking, when we're talking about talk therapy, when we are sitting down in talk therapy, I, I feel strongly that a big part of that, of why I can really hit the mark, is because of the bond that we form with the therapist and why it is so important to find a good therapist. And if you don't feel a connection with your therapist, it's okay to move on and find another therapist. It's really like having a trusty guide or the safe harbor when you're starting to navigate through some pretty rough emotional storms. I really enjoy Andrew Huberman's podcast and I've talked before about, he has talked about why eye movement works. I was talking about EMDR once, but in the process of him talking about why eye movement works, he was talking about how it can speed up some of these symptoms of safety that occur in just general talk therapy. Granted, it can take longer when you're just talking about talk therapy, but he dove into this really cool aspect where he said, in the midst of therapy, we're dealing with two powerful forces at the same time. You know, in essence, imagine you're talking about something that really just, it can be scary, it frightens you, can shake you right to your core, something traumatic or maybe something that you are deeply ashamed of. So that's the rough part. But then here's the, the positive aspect. 
while you're opening up about this tough stuff, you're also feeling this wave of safety and support from your therapist. And a lot of times that's not something that you had growing up, which is why you suppress your thoughts and feelings and emotions. So it's almost like you're in that moment, you're in a, in a protective bubble. And the idea here is really fascinating because by experiencing these two opposite things together, you're essentially starting to rewire the brain circuitry. It's like teaching your brain a new way to understand and process these experiences that I can, I can share these scary things, but I can also feel safe at the same time. So I'm getting away from that all or nothing black or white thinking. Huberman talked about this approach as saying that it can genuinely help. He said, but, and it's a big but, it's not a quick fix because rewiring your brain's response to trauma or deeply ingrained fear takes time and it can take a lot of sessions with a therapist. So this isn't a downside of therapy, it's just how the process works. So it is true, back to this article, that not everybody has the time, the money, the resources to stick with therapy long enough to see those kind of long-term changes. I mean, I think that really speaks to the, you know, this, I feel like this powerful testament of the potential of talk therapy, but then it can also maybe shine a light on a, a little bit of a gap in accessibility. So that path is absolutely effective as far as healing goes, but it can still be a challenge to get that kind of help or treatment to everybody. So Dr. Freeman says, there's reason to believe that talk therapy in the absence of acute symptoms may sometimes cause harm. He says excessive self-focus easily facilitated in a setting in which you're literally paying to talk about your feelings can increase your anxiety, especially when it substitutes for tangible actions. So before I read the next part, I will say that I, I can acknowledge this for sure. And again, why I love my, my dear sweet acceptance and commitment therapy where there, there, is, there are actions to be taken for the different things that you're, you're doing. So you, you acknowledge and notice all the thoughts and feelings and then do take action on things that matter. But Dr. Freeman says, if your neurotic or depressive symptoms are relatively mild, meaning they don't really interfere with your daily functioning, you might be better served by spending less time in a therapist's office and more time connecting with friends, pursuing a hobby or volunteering. He said, therapists are trained to use the tools they've learned for certain types of problems and many of the stress-inducing minutiae of daily life are not among them. So I do think that's uh, an interesting take because he's saying that therapists are trained for certain types of problems, but many of the ones that are just part of your day-to-day life are not among them. And I would argue that in the, the ACT world, that if it is something that is coming up for you or significant to you, well, you're the only version of you, so tell me more about that. So I go back to that, who am I to tell somebody, yeah, that that's not very important because I just, I think that what I'm doing then is I'm dismissing the client's experience because it is their experience. It's how they are feeling and what they're thinking. And we need to start from a place of that. Tell me more, check that out. So then he just says, he might decide to teach you, I think talking about your therapist, a stress reduction technique, but your colleagues or boss might provide a more, more specific strategies for improving your performance. Okay. On that one, I'll just say, I'll note that interesting. He then said one of his childhood friends whose parents were both psychoanalysts went on, went to weekly therapy appointments while we were growing up. He said he was a happy, energetic kid, but his parents wanted him and his sister to be better acquainted with their inner lives to help them deal with whatever adversity came their way. My friend and his sister both grew up to be successful adults, but also highly anxious and neurotic ones. He said, I imagine their parents would say the kids would have been worse without the therapy. After all, mental illness ran in their family. He said, but I can find no substantial clinical evidence supporting this kind of preventative psychotherapy. And and I think that's a really fair point. That's I, I don't know these people, but I often find that when I'm talking with parents 
and they have their thoughts or their feelings about something that their kids are doing. An example that I dealt with just earlier today are some parents that are coming in to process their kid leaving their faith community. And it's really fascinating because we've got that, call it my pre-pillar. It's based off of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, where they're making an observation that their kid wants to leave their faith community. Their kid, I use that term loosely, is an adult human being. And the parents make this observation that their kid wants to leave this faith community that they've been a part of their entire life, that the parents are heavily involved in. And so they make that observation and then the judgment that goes along with it that they're saying, well, obviously their kid wants to just sin and engage in riotous living. And at that point, then whatever, if they ask their kid, hey, tell me why you want to pull away from the faith community, then if the kid says anything other than what they've already made the judgment of, that uh, if the kid doesn't say, well, you know, I was thinking about it and I really want to sin and engage in debaucherous activities, then the parent gets to say, See, they're not even being honest with themselves. So they have to separate that observation from their judgment. And I give that example because, and I know I don't know these people that Dr. Friedman's talking about, but if they've already made an observation that their their kid is maybe acting who knows how, how, and maybe they're just being a kid, a young kid, and the parent then says, okay, I see that, I observe that, the judgment I'm going to make now is if they don't deal with their attachment issues now, then they're going to blow up into very big things in the future. And, and so I can understand where then at, the, at times then a parent says, so I need to intervene now, especially when the kid is younger, because you, you definitely don't know what you don't know. And you're looking out for the kid as best as you can. And so you think that if I can just uh, implement some of these things in place now that, that we don't even know if they'll ever really matter for that particular kid based on all of their nature and nurture and birth order and DNA and abandonment, rejection, all those things that they bring to the table, the, the unique version of themselves but the parent saying, I got to, I got to make sure I've done everything I can do. So back to this example that I have, then the parent is now saying, so how do we convince our kid that they need to return back to this faith community? And the answer is you, you don't, you accept them as they are on their journey and you become curious and it will make you uncomfortable. That's a you issue because separating that observation from judgment, especially in this scenario where someone's leaving a, a faith community, and this is more of a, a high demand faith community then the parent may then start to feel like, well, wait, they can't just leave. That means I've done something wrong, that I'm a bad parent, which is not the case. That just means that the kid is now at a place in their life where because of all the things that they've been through, they're ready to make a decision. And at this point, it's never too late to try to provide that secure attachment. But that is something that the parent is going to have to really work on, sitting with that discomfort, separating observation from judgment, being curious, hearing things that they may not want to hear and then trying not to, yeah, but their own kid about their, their kid's feelings. So I do appreciate what Dr. Freeman's saying here. The parent then would say that they're, in the example he's given, would say, well, our kids would have been worse off if we hadn't have gotten them into almost preventative therapy. But the reality is were the parents getting them into that therapy because they, it made them feel like better parents. But we go back to that. We don't know what we don't know, especially when we're trying to figure out what's the right thing to do with our kids at all times. He said beginning therapy in the first place is, to be clear, a privilege. He said therapy is not covered by many insurance plans, and a very large number of people who could benefit from it can't afford it for any duration. He said only 47% of Americans with a psychiatric illness received any form of treatment in 2021. He said, in fact, federal estimates suggest that the United States is several thousand mental health professionals short 
I want to say of a full something. I feel like there's a joke there, but they, the U.S. is several thousand mental health professionals short, a gap that's likely to grow in the coming years. So he says stopping therapy when you're ready opens up space for others who might need this scarce service more than you do, which I completely hear and understand. And that drought in the number of practitioners is a real problem because I know for people that I'm working with who are trying to get their their kids, their spouses, people in their family into therapy, it can be incredibly difficult to even get a therapist to respond back to them at this point, which is just so unfortunate. So sometimes I feel like people almost want to keep their therapist engaged so that they don't lose them. As a matter of fact, here is a very real story that has happened on numerous occasions that I never would have anticipated as a therapist. But I've had people that have, thank goodness, shot me a text maybe uh, the last minute or the day before and said, hey, the appointment that I scheduled, because I have an online booking system, the appointment I've scheduled, I've told a good friend of mine that they can take that spot because they're looking for a therapist and I really think that they would like you, which sounds wonderful, but I really need to know who I'm going to be working with. And I currently have a wait list. So that's just throwing somebody up in front who I'm not even sure if they really do want to go to therapy or if this is just one of my clients that has had a positive experience saying, you know what you should do? You should go to therapy. But I never anticipated that that would be a thing. And again, it's happened multiple times. Dr. Freeman then says, I do not mean to suggest that a therapy vacation should be considered lightly or that it's for everybody. If you have a serious mental health disorder, such as major depression or bipolar disorder, you should discuss with your mental health provider whether ending therapy is appropriate for your individual situation. And he says, keep in mind that your therapist might not be ready to quit when you are. Aside from a financial incentive to continue treatment, parting with a charming, low-maintenance patient is not so easy. And, and I know I've said this now several times, but I'm reading this in real time. And I just, I do love his honesty here. Because I think that's one of the knocks against therapy is that someone will say often, well, they're again, they're just in it for the money. And so I like that he said, keep in mind, your therapist might not be ready to quit when you are. And my first thought was, it can be a challenge if you as a therapist really do understand the nature of therapy or when we're really getting close to something that is uncomfortable and we're wired to not want discomfort. We want to get rid of discomfort. And one of the easiest ways to get rid of discomfort is to just stop coming to therapy. And then as the therapist, you can't reach out and beg the person to come back, even if you feel like that would be the best thing for them, because it really does need to be a them thing, a decision that they are invested in. But when he then said, aside from a financial incentive to continue treatment, parting with a charming low maintenance client, low maintenance patient is not so easy because I think it's, uh, I don't think it's as bad as where we say that, Hey, I love all my kids the same. I don't have a favorite. Maybe we're supposed to say that as therapists, that we love all of our clients the same and that we don't have a favor, but there are people that you really do enjoy working with. Maybe slightly more, look, I'm trying to couch what I'm saying, but maybe you've got a, a better rapport, a better bond there. He says, my rule of thumb is that you should have minimal to no symptoms of your illness for six months or so before even considering a pause. Should you and your therapist agree that stopping is reasonable, a temporary break with a clear expiration date is ideal. At any time, if you're feeling worse, you can always go back. Psychiatrists do something similar with psychiatric meds. He says, for example, when I prescribe a depressed patient an antidepressant and then they remain stable and free of symptoms for several years, I usually consider tapering the medication to determine whether it's still necessary for the patient's well-being. I would do this only for patients who are at a low risk of relapse. For example, people who've had just one or two episodes rather than many over a lifetime. 
pausing therapy should be even less risky. The beautiful thing about therapy is that unlike a drug, it equips you with new knowledge and skills which you can carry with you when you leave. And that is spot on. And I have a theory in my emotional baseline theory, which again is self-care is not selfish concept, raising your emotional baseline. This is something that I came up with almost 15 years ago. And so I can't say that I have tons of, of data, research data based that, that have come from my emotional baseline theory, but I will say anecdotal data, and I feel very confident about it. And that is the concept of where when life is going really well and everything seems to just happen and, and it's the way that you want it to be, things are going great. Your baseline of emotions, your emotional baseline is high. But then when you are going through things in life and maybe you go through a breakup or there's a significant illness or a job loss or whatever that is, it slowly but surely lowers your emotional baseline. And then all of the things that are coming at you on a day-to-day basis are still coming at you on a day-to-day basis with the same intensity, but you are now operating from a, a different place to respond to those things. And you might even dip into the point where it isn't so much a response, but then a reaction and a raising of your emotional baseline will help you show up different. So I like to say that I often feel that when people are coming in and they're really low and they really want help, but they're so low that they you can provide them with help or services, but then they don't do them and then they feel even worse. And it's almost as if they don't have their, they don't have enough of a an emotional baseline to be able to access the tools that you're giving them which is even more frustrating to them because they'll even buy into the fact that they'll, I think those tools might work. They maybe worked in the past. I just can't get myself to do them. That then taking a medication can really help raise that, that emotional baseline to get to the point where now they can access the tools and maybe they need to stay on their medication for a while while they can start practicing things of discovering their values, having a, a mindfulness practice, learning how to not need as much validation from somebody else, learning to take action on things that matter from them, even when there are the yeah buts in their life. And then once they continue to build those skills and raise that emotional baseline, then at some point if they decide they want to taper off a medication in conjunction with their doctor, their psychiatrist, then they may take a, a small hit to that emotional baseline, but they're still operating from a place where they can access tools. And I just want to be very clear, again, I am not a psychiatrist, I'm not a medical doctor, And that is anecdotal data based off of my emotional baseline theory. So Dr. Freeman wraps it up by saying, about a year after my patient and I first talked about ending therapy, I ran into him in a cafe. He told me that stopping had taken him six months, but now he was thriving. Maybe you, like my patient, are daunted by the idea of quitting cold turkey. If so, consider taking a vacation from treatment instead. It might be the perfect way to see how far you've really come. And I will just throw out here another bit of anecdotal data where I have felt at times like somebody is really struggling to put into action the tools that they're trying to learn in therapy or they come regularly and they start to beat themselves up of why am I not feeling better? And and I have had that experience where somebody will start to slowly lessen the amount of appointments that they have and then you do run into them down the road or they do come back for something completely different years later and you do get to hear those success stories about someone that once they really were happened to almost do it on their own, that then they were able to recall the tools and then do them without needing the validation of the therapist. So I think maybe the, the, the proverbial bottom line is your mileage may vary, but I just thought it was a really interesting article and I, and I liked it being the muse today. If you are currently in therapy and it works for you, then that is great. If you are currently in therapy and you think, I don't know if this is working for me, 
in a perfect world, bring it up to your therapist. And then you can start to identify, is there an exit strategy? Have you met the goals of your treatment plan? Is there a treatment plan? And then I like what Dr. Friedman's saying, maybe taking a therapy vacation would be a good idea just to see, okay, can I put some more of these tools in place? Because continually, the more that you do, the more you interact with the world, the more that you're going to learn about yourself. And, and some of that, some of those concepts you might learn are, oh, I thought I understood what we were talking about in therapy, but now that I'm out here in the wild, I'm not quite sure. But now I really know, okay, I need to pay more attention. So thanks for joining me today. If you have thoughts, questions, I love hearing the experiences too. Even if you had experiences where you you did stop going to therapy and it helped, or if you stopped and maybe it was more of a challenge than you thought, write me at contact at tonyoverbay.com and taking us out per usual, the wonderful, the talented Aurora Florence with her song, It's Wonderful. Have an amazing week and I will see you next week on the virtual couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most It's wonderful
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.